This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is The World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. Speaking today with Edward D. Melillo, Professor of History and Environmental Studies in Amherst College, about his new book, The Butterfly Effect, Insects and the Making of the Modern World. Your book, Ted, is a cabinet of wonders, up to the standard you set by choosing for the book's epigraph Friedrich Nietzsche's observation that our treasure lies in the beehive of our knowledge. We are perpetually on the way thither, being by nature winged insects and honey gatherers of the mind. You too are a honey gatherer of the mind, but if insects shape the ways we hear, taste, feel, and see the world, why then is the fear of insects among the most prevalent anxieties of our modern age? Well, first of all, thank you, Lewis, for inviting me to do this and for that lovely introduction. Uh, as readers will be able to tell from my book, I had an incredibly fun time writing it, and I was surprised at so many turns by the degree to which insects are in us, around us, on us. They're ubiquitous in our daily lives. To get to the answer to your question, though, we have to think about the fact that insects are responsible for destroying about 25% of the goods and services produced in developing nations every year. And the world's farmers spend about 16 billion US dollars annually on insecticides. One can think of diseases like malaria, Zika, dengue fever, uh, yellow fever. You can go on and on, um, and all the disastrous impacts that insects have had on humanity. And there's quite a bit of wonderful historical writing on that. But I decided to take a different tack with this book and pursue the beneficial relationships that insects have had with humanity. And I was surprised at how many I found when I began to do the research. The book starts with an examination of cochineal, uh, which is the source of Europe's great red dye from the 16th century on, shellac, which it turns out was the material in 78 RPM records, and silk, which of course many of us know the secretion of silkworms. Uh, and then I delve into explorations of many other insects that are with us on a daily basis from the bees that pollinate one and every three bites of food people on the planet take on a regular basis to Drosophila, the fruit fly. The ordinary fruit fly is the source of much of our knowledge about genetics and the human genome. So I decided to invert the traditional telling of the stories about the way that insects relate with humans and look a bit at the benefits they create for us. But we do still. I mean, insects in the ordinary conversation get a very bad name. I mean, we we, I mean, we think of them as malignant images, flies, maggots, embodying filth, decay, moral degeneration, and you know, and and the uh, termites, carpenter ants, tunneling through walls and floorboards, 
bed bugs, lice. Right, right, I mean, <laughs> right. And that's the way we've really come to know them in the West. And Hollywood and the popular media has, of course, had a field day with those images. One thinks back to the big bug movies of the 1950s. And as I talk about in the book, those continue to today. The big bugs and arthropods in general are often cloaked as evil villains. And when bugs are shown in Hollywood, they're often humanized. They take off the mandibles and the hard exoskeletons, give them arms, remove a pair of legs, maybe even take away the wings and stand them upright to make them seem more human. Uh, but I was really intrigued by the ways that as I researched further and further on this project, I kept finding bugs being so beneficial to humanity. And so that's the story I'm really trying to tell here. There's some great books that, that tell the other story, but that's the one I'm after. And perhaps I'll change a few minds along the way. Well, let's start by changing. Pick one. I mean, pick Silk or Cochinel or Schlack or and, and start, start anywhere you like and, and begin piling up the benefits, you know. <laughs> well, sure. I'll start with shellac because that was the one that surprised me the most. My, my training is in Chinese and Latin American history. So I was well aware of the role that silk has played in shaping both the history of China and the history of the world. And as a Latin Americanist, I was also aware of cochineal, which is a fascinating insect that I'm sure we'll get to at some point. But shellac was something I knew very little about even though it coats many of our back porches and it's in nail polish and hairspray, we don't give it a second thought. Uh, as it turns out, it's the secretion of a tiny bug called the Caryolaca insect, which is raised on fig and acacia trees in India and throughout much of Southeast Asia. And for thousands of years, it's been harvested for the smooth sheen that it can impart to all sorts of substances ranging from wood to ceramics. But it wasn't until the 19th century that a new array of uses was found for it. And that's when, during the early development of recorded sound, a number of innovative uh, engineering pioneers figured out that you could turn shellac into a substance that could be made into a record. And so all those old 78 RPMs that some of us who are at least 30 or 40 may remember from our grandparents' record collections, uh, those records that spin and have the sound of bacon sizzling in a fry pan when playing back blues and jazz and old classical tunes are made out of shellac. So indeed, the global transmission of sound prior to the era of vinyl in the 1940s was all predicated on an insect secretion. And that really surprised me and led to further investigations. It turns out that we're all eating shellac all the time, whether we know it or not. It's the enteric coating on many pills to prevent medicines from being digested too rapidly in the very acidic environment of your stomach. It's on Halloween candy. All candy, in fact, has shellac on it as a, as a coating to keep it shiny and to keep the water in it. And it's even on a lot of fruit in the grocery store when you walk into the 
uh, grocery shop next time, you should look around you at most of the fruit. Anything that looks really shiny is probably coated in either canuba wax or shellac to keep the moisture in and make it look fresh over the weeks that it spends there. So shellac is all over the place, but yet we hardly give it a second thought if we know about it at all. And that's the case with many of the products I talk about throughout the book, that they're with us unbeknownst to us all the time. And and shellac is made from the bodies of, of insects. Is that right? Well, it's actually a secretion from the bodies of the female Karyalaka insect. She secretes it to protect her young. Um, she thrives on, on various saps from tree branches on fig and acacia trees and to protect her young from her eggs, from predators and from ultraviolet radiation. She secretes this waxy substance. But then men and women, and millions of them do this for their daily livelihoods throughout the developing world, harvest those branches break off the shellac, melt it down, stretch it out, and ship it to often the developed world as, as these fragments that are then remelted and turned into all of these products that are, that are everywhere, going hither and thither through and on our bodies. And do we produce it at all in, in the developed world? I mean, do we have in the United States, for example, acacia trees raising the lac bug? Very little, very little of it is produced in the developed world. And that's one of the sort of hallmarks of shellac, silk, and cochineal is that smallholders and peasants throughout the developing world, partly because they're much closer to the equator in many cases, are living in the areas where there are the long-standing practices of raising these insects, but also raising the plants on which they dine. Shellac, uh, as I said, is raised on fig and acacia trees. Silkworms dine on mulberry leaves and cochineal insects are raised in southern Mexico and northern Peru on nopal cacti. So in some ways, this is a story about humans raising insects, but it's also a story about humans with thousands of years of botanical knowledge about how to raise the plants on which these six-legged critters dine. They We'll talk a little bit about silk because silk is comes out of China many, many years ago, but the Emperor Justinian, circa whatever it is, 500 AD, manages to bring the silk manufacture into the into the West. Absolutely. So silk, silk is a repository of all sorts of fantastical tales, many of which are probably apocryphal, but they make for good reading nonetheless. The Chinese have a legend of the discovery of silk several thousand years ago by a princess named Lei Tzu, and she apparently was sitting underneath a mulberry tree sipping on her afternoon cup of tea, and a silkworm cocoon happened to tumble down from one of the branches of the tree into to her waiting teacup. And legend has it that she put two fingers in and pulled out the shimmering thread from the teacup and it stretched on and on and on. And she was just so surprised at how strong this thread was. And that apparently was the beginning of Chinese sericulture, which is just the fancy name for raising silkworms. And indeed, a silkworm's filament can stretch for up to 3,000 feet just to put it in relative perspective, that's the length of 10 U.S. football fields. Um, and silkworms are really incredible. They're 
their body weight increases some 10,000 times over their four to six week life. Uh, and, and they then produce this filament that is turned into one of mankind's greatest fabrics. You talk about a legend, but in, in, in historical time, when in China do we discover silk? Yeah, it's 2000 some years before the common era. So silk has been part of Chinese culture for millennia, and it makes it very hard to think about the long provenance of a product like that when we imagine the fashion industry as constantly turning over and and such a result of recent trends. But, but silk has been traded as a crucial substance for thousands of years. And of course, the Silk Road is a testament to that. I mean, it was actually in the 13th century under the Mongols, the Pax Mongolica, we don't think of Mongols and peace, where much of that silk was traded and eventually entered Europe. I like to talk about one episode in 53 before the common era, when one of Rome's wealthiest men, Marcus Licinius Crassus, took his seven Roman legions into battle against the Parthians from Iran in Turkey, what's modern day Turkey. And it was the first time that Romans apparently had ever seen silk. The Parthians came over one of the sand dunes, and in the hot, shining sun, they unfurled scarlet-colored silken banners. And you can just imagine the Roman legions were paralyzed by this sight, and there was also the loud beating of the Parthian drums. And then the Parthian archers came over these dunes and began to pin the Romans to the ground, apparently with their arrows. Plutarch writes about this in quite some detail. And that's actually the origin of the English expression, the Parthian shot, the parting shot. We get that right. from this moment. And it's a fascinating encounter because it's really a human encounter with an insect secretion when you think about it in terms of the, the ways that I'm talking about this in, in this book. And uh, the Romans just after that couldn't get enough silk, but the no. Chinese yeah. very carefully guarded the secrets of sericulture until silk was smuggled, as you pointed out, by Nestorian monks in their canes. And there are many stories about the smuggling of silk out of China. Because in Rome, after the death of Crassus and the loss of his entire army, silk becomes a great luxury in, in Rome, right? Absolutely. And and throughout Europe later, there are various sumptuary laws that govern who can wear silk and who can't wear silk because it's so clearly a symbol of opulence and, and of, of regal provenance. And so everyone's always coming and going with regulations about who's allowed to wear silk, but everyone wants to get their hands on it because it's such an unrivaled product in terms of the way that it captures light and in terms of its lightness and its feel. I mean, we all have felt silk at this point, a silk necktie, a silk dress, even silk underwear, perhaps. And and really, engineers have struggled to find something in the laboratory that can parallel this creation. Uh, but that just goes to show insects have had a vast head start on us. They've been around for 480 million years, and the earliest fossil evidence of anatomically modern Homo sapiens is now dated to about 300,000 years ago. So insects have got a jump on us by almost 480 million years. So they've been able to invent a few odds and ends that we have not figured out yet. They also are the greatest 
body of, of, of living organisms in the world. I mean, there's something like, what do you say, 10 quintillion insects moving around at any one time in the, in the, in the world? Yeah, isn't that stunning? Entomologists estimate now, yeah, that there are 10 quintillion insects alive on Earth. Just to put that in perspective for your listeners, that's 10 followed by 18 zeros. My seven-year-old and I tried to write that out on a blank page just to see how many S curves it would take to get all those zeros on a page. So that's how many insects are on the planet. And we're really living on an insect planet in a lot of ways. We're the kind of visitors to this place where so much of daily life is governed by the comings and goings of these six-legged cousins. You think about all you know, plant sex, pollination, um, and much of decay of organic matter, the end of life is governed by the comings and goings of insects. And we don't often acknowledge that, but yet it's a fundamental fact of our planetary existence. Yes, I mean, I mean, I, I think you quote E.O. Wilson uh, to the effect that if insects were to vanish from the earth, the entire system would collapse, whereas if mankind were to vanish, nothing much would happen. Things would probably end up back in, in equilibrium. Yeah, absolutely. One of my favorite quotes, just to pair with the Wilson quote, is one from... Uh, the British Indian-born entomologist J.B.S. Haldane, who in the 1920s was asked by several theologians, what might you learn about the creator from your studies of life on Earth? And Haldane apparently said, well, he must have an inordinate fondness for beetles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. of, of course, he was saying that because there are 350,000 species of beetles on the planet, far more than any other animal group on our planet. And so in a lot of ways, we don't think about this because insects do much of their muddling about between blades of grass and under garbage cans and behind refrigerators and out of view uh, and we may remark on the butterfly or the bee that alights on our garden plants in the backyard, but insects are all over the place at all times doing all sorts of things. I mean, you, you, you say somewhere that there was a study of homes in North Carolina and, that found 10,000 species of insect in the average house. Yeah, and it's important to... To, to note that that was species, not individuals. Uh, and th the study was, was done by Michelle Troutwine um, from San Francisco and a number of her colleagues who are entomologists. And they did another study where they looked into Parisian apartments and, and hovels at the top of Peruvian mountains. And everywhere they went, what they found is that in people's homes, insects are in and on everything. It may, it may gross some folks out, but you may just have to come to terms with the fact that insects are part of our daily existence, including our habitat. Um, and, and so one of the real revelations for me of, of doing the research for this project was just coming to terms with how omnipresent insects are. When did you first make your serious acquaintance with insects? When did you first become, you know, concerned about them? 
I, I was captivated as an 11 year old. My, my dad is an ecologist who works in Woods Hole, Massachusetts at the Marine Biological Laboratory. And my mom is an English teacher. And thus I became an environmental historian by combining two limbs of the family tree. And somebody gave me a career out of it. But when I was a kid, I went to the Woods Hole Children's School of Science on Cape Cod. And I was lucky enough to end up in a class with Becky Lash, who's a renowned monarch butterfly expert on Cape Cod. This was way back in 1984. And a bunch of rambunctious 11-year-olds were cooped up in a hot room on a summer day. And Becky set a monarch butterfly on a ripe wedge of watermelon. And the butterfly took its proboscis and stuck it in and took a long drink of the sweet juices from that watermelon. And all of these young kids were just staring at it like, I need a drink too. (laughs) And that was when I first realized that something that seemed so resolutely foreign was actually something where I could find common cause. And from then I was, from then on, I was captivated and I had many memorable interactions. One of the most profound was in 2003. I lucked out and happened to go to the Monarch Butterfly Reserve at Natural Bridges State Beach in Santa Cruz, California, and got to see over a million monarchs overwintering on some eucalyptus trees. They looked like sort of Chinese folding fans in a marketplace. They were all sunning themselves. And it was just such an awe-inspiring sight so I've been hooked for a long time, but those are some of the highlights along the way. Talk some more about the monarch butterfly. I mean, talk about its overwintering and its travels and its navigation. Yeah, there's a there's a wonderful novel that I'll recommend to your listeners, Flight Behavior by Barbara Kingsolver, which uh, discusses the disruption of the monarch migration route. It makes this, well, there's several different migration routes that different groups of monarchs make, but they travel for thousands of miles, often from Canada or the Rockies, far down to central Mexico, where they overwinter, some overwinter in California. But one of the things that we've been noticing is that climate change and habitat destruction have been severely limiting and changing migration routes of the monarch butterfly. And the monarch is a really crucial pollinator species. And what's going on with monarchs is telling us something about what's going on with all insects, in fact. Upwards of 40% of insect species are in decline and a third are endangered. And yet one in every three bites of food somebody takes every day on the planet is pollinated by an insect. And we don't often think about the fact that if we see major disruptions of insect migrations and insect pollination, a lot of the things that you and I enjoy, coffee, tea, a whole host of vegetables and fruits are are not going to be able to be produced. For example, California's almond crop which covers about 1.5 million acres of California is entirely dependent upon 31 billion honeybees that are brought in each year by flatbed truck to pollinate those trees. And that's North America's, it's the United States' seventh largest agricultural export. We send almonds to the world and all those almond trees are not able to do what they do without bees. And those bees are also like monarchs suffering from from the sort of global crisis that we're seeing among insects. I think I've read stories to the effect that the bumblebee population is declining. 
Absolutely. Yeah, that's been that's been remarked upon. I talk about it in the book for for quite a while, but but more recently, since about two thousand and eight, the media has been calling it colony collapse disorder, and it's a real threat to pollinators. One of the things that's been happening is that a type of chemical that farmers have been using, a pesticide known as neonicotinoids that mimic nicotine, which you probably know from tobacco, um, seem to be really destructive to bees and other insects. Also, climate change and habitat destruction and a parasitic mite known by the very colorful name Varroa destructor have been threatening bee colonies. And beekeepers have been noticing dramatic declines in the health of of their colonies in the last few years. And it's prompted real concern. And so I would hope that that folks really advocate uh, with local, regional, state, and national politicians to protect migration corridors, habitats, and uh, ban some of these pesticides because we've got to take really immediate action to protect the insects that are really at the heart of plant reproduction and basic processes that keep our planet functioning. Talk about, explain the the title of your book is The Butterfly Effect. Explain the meaning of that phrase and where does that phrase come from? Absolutely. I I hope it's not too much of a bait and switch. People may think they're going to be reading a book about butterflies, open it up and... (laughs) find out that that my quarry is quite different. But the subtitle tells it all, Insects in the Making of the Modern World. The term butterfly effect comes from Edward Lorenz, who was one of the pioneers of chaos theory. And he gave a talk in 1972 where he suggested the hallmark of chaotic behavior, which is really that small causes can have large, wide-ranging effects. And that's what I hope to imply in the book as well, is that these small causes, insects, can really have tremendous effects across global systems, not just national and and regional systems. And in the products I talk about and all the services that insects provide, they really are doing just that. Talk about, I I could pick around anywhere in this book because I, 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 you can read it at random and you come across a wonderful fact <laughs> in, mm-hmm. in, almost in every page. But talk about the some of the insect products that we have found synthetics for. I mean, there's at one point in the history of the West where honey and iron gall ink are basic products in our culture, but we've, we've found synthetics for those. Absolutely. So honey and iron gall ink are two examples of insect products that have really lost ground over time. We may all still have honey in our cabinets and may add it to tea and a few recipes here and there. But for the most part, the global sweetener market is dominated by things like high fructose corn syrup and sugar cane. Iron gall ink is really fascinating because it's produced by a, a wasp that stings uh, uh certain oak trees and then produces a gall from which you can extract the tannins and make an ink and all sorts of famous works from the Declaration of Independence to the Codex Sinaiticus, the first version of the New Testament that we have extant, uh, were written in iron gall ink, but it was largely replaced in the 20th century by synthetic inks. On the other hand, shellac, silk, and cochineal are ancient products 
made by insects that have all made comebacks. Because after the Second World War, there was sort of this heady thought that synthetic biology, that things created in laboratories were going to replace putatively natural products. And for a while, we thought that was the case. You know, we had nylon and rayon that were going to replace silk and all sorts of artificial plastics, vinyls were going to replace shellac and all of these red dye number 26 and 7 were going to replace cochineal. As it turns out, some of those products were toxic to the human body, and we started to discover that in the 1970s with the rise of environmental toxicology. And it also turns out that a number of products like silk simply can't be manufactured or synthesized in the laboratory adequately. Uh, engineers have tried and tried again to make silk in a lab, and they never quite get there. Um, and so the book is in part a way of examining the synthetic age and thinking about uh, the rise of these substitutes and then their eventual failure and our return to these natural systems of production in so many ways. And in fact, the future may be in part predicated upon insects and the things that they generate. I talk quite a bit in the book about eating insects and folks who prognosticate about the future of food are all putting their money on cricket meal as one of the ways we may get ourselves out of a big pickle, the, the predicament of global hunger. Uh, you know, the United Nations projects that there are going to be 9 billion people on this planet by 2050. How are we going to feed everybody? We're not going to do it with livestock. Uh, one pound of beef in the United States takes a thousand gallons of water and two acres of grazing land to produce, whereas one pound of crickets takes only one gallon of water and two cubic feet of space to produce. And you get about three times the amount of protein from the crickets as you do from the beef and more iron and nutrients. So in all of our futures, there are certainly going to be more more bugs, whether we like it or not. And in fact, some people don't even realize, but we're all eating insects all the time. Um, in fact, your, your coffee, 10% of green beans entering the United States are allowed to be insect parts. Um, and insect body parts are in peanut butter and chocolate, and they're just everywhere. So you may think you're judiciously avoiding eating insects, but in fact, you're not. But there are many people, you know, in, in the less developed world that are eating insects all the time. Absolutely. I mean, globally, about 2 billion people consume insects on a regular basis. And it, they're, they're a centerpiece of almost every major global world cuisine. Uh, it's hard to find a cuisine without insects, except maybe in the United States and parts of Europe. And so we're the exception uh, to the rule, which is eating insects. And I've tried tried my share of of insects and various other cuisines. I've eaten zazamushi, which are uh, river insect larvae and Japanese cuisine. Those are a delicacy. And I've tried pondongi, which are a South Korean roasted silkworm pupa that are eaten out of a little styrofoam cup with a toothpick. And I've eaten chapulines, which are fried crickets and grasshoppers from Southern Mexico, which are dosed in chilies and lime. And uh, do, do they taste good, these various... Well, some of them are acquired tastes. I'll say that the bonongi is a bit like a cross between a peanut and a shrimp, if you can imagine that. And that wasn't so familiar to my taste buds. 
But the chapulinas are marvelous. I mean, they sort of taste like a tortilla chip, basically. They're crunchy and they taste like chilies and lime. And those are gaining popularity in the United States. In fact, at uh, Safeco Field, where the Seattle Mariners play, they've served several hundred thousand servings of them alongside the hot dogs and peanuts and cracker jacks that everyone's eating. And and um, they're a diehard fan favorite at this point. So it, it may be that we're, we're seeing a shift in the dietary habits in the West, although it's perhaps too early to project that. Um, I'll tell you one more quick little story. When I was giving a lecture one morning at Amherst College, three football players walked into the lecture hall and they were all munching on protein bars. They'd done their morning weight lift. And I, I looked down at the wrappers of their protein bars and they said exo bar. And the exo was short for exoskeleton. And what these guys didn't realize is they were eating protein bars where the protein was all freeze-dried cricket meal. <laughs> and I mentioned this to them. They looked down and laughed and they said, well, at least they taste good. And um, they just kept munching along. And so here they were eating insects without even knowing it. But if you eat Dan and fruit on the bottom yogurt, the cochineal is the red dye for the strawberries. Or if you've ever gone to a sushi place and had the fake crab legs. Those are made red because of cochineal. And, you know, whenever you take a Tylenol or eat a Halloween candy, you're consuming shellac. So, you know, the idea that we can avoid this is is probably nonsensical as well. Tell the story of Sir Thomas Beckett in Canada, the saint who's murdered, yeah. in, murdered in the in the cathedral. Yeah, yeah. Well, after his murder, he was he was lying in the cathedral overnight. And the next day when um, the monks in attendance disrobed him to prepare him for the funeral, he had this sort of profuse assortment of hair shirts and silk shirts as all as all, uh, you know, the ecclesiastical vestments were known. And beneath it all, was was a colony of fleas and lice that were stimulated apparently by the cold morning air of the cathedral. And his followers didn't know whether to scream in joy or terror at what they saw, but there was this whole insect colony living on his body. And he apparently, as many Christian saints were, was perfectly happy to be a habitat for, for the divine's beings. And it just was a fascinating story to come across as I thought about the insects that are living in us, on us, and around us and the way they've been discussed throughout history. Yeah, you have a lovely phrase where you say that Beckett was propelled into the afterlife on the wings of a swarm. <laughs> yes, yes. And I think, I think, in fact, many of history's greats were indeed, and even some of history's lesser known characters, two of whom I really want to mention here because my work on their stories was among the most illuminating of the research I did for the book. One of them is Maria Sibylla Marion, who really should be regarded as the, I don't know how many greats we'd put in front of her name, but the great, 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 great grandmother of entomology. In the 17th century, in 1699, she and her daughter by themselves got on board a ship and sailed from the Netherlands to the Dutch colony of Suriname. And it was the first purely scientific expedition to the Americas by private individuals. And they spent three years drawing insects, beautiful drawings and paintings that they then brought back to Europe. 
And one of the things that was remarkable about Marion is she depicted insects in their habitat and eating the foods that they ate. Previously, everyone in Europe had, had depicted insects on blank backgrounds. One thinks of Albrecht Durer's The Stag Beetle, that image of a beetle on a white background that we all may have seen. But Miriam revolutionized entomology by showing insects in their habitats. And she also showed the various stages of life of an insect, their metamorphosis from egg into larva and pupa and adult. And that was revolutionary because previously many Europeans had thought that the stages of an insect's life were actually different organisms. And so Miriam is kind of a founding mother who's just starting to get recognized, but she's remarkable. The other one I'll just mention briefly is Charles Henry Turner, who was born in 1867 and died in 1923. And he's the first African-American man to be published in the prestigious journal Science. He's the first African-American to get a PhD in zoology from University of Chicago, but he couldn't get a job because he was black and no university would give him employment. So he ended up as a high school teacher. He had no fancy lab, no grad students, none of the things we expect when we think about major researchers, but he produced much of the early research on how bees pollinate by just doing very simple but elegant experiments in a St. Louis park. And his story was truly remarkable to me as well, because very little has been written about him. And I was able to look at his papers and letters and, and really delve into his biography. And so, you know, in some fascinating ways, the pioneering entomologists were propelled into their careers on the wings of a swarm in part because they were just doing things that required tremendous persistence um, and a kind of dogged pursuit of scientific results, no matter what uh, the situation was for, for Marion, it was being a woman traveling alone across the Atlantic. For Turner, it was being a black man in a white man's world doing remarkable science. Uh, and I talk about Carl von Fritsch, who was a man of Jewish descent, who also gave us much of our knowledge about pollination, who was relentlessly pursued by the Nazis and yet persisted. So, you know, those stories turned out to be fascinating in their own right as well. Well, I, I should say the whole, your whole book, Ted, is fascinating. And it was a joy to read and a joy to hear you talk about it. And thank you very much for speaking with us today about the butterfly effect, insects and the making of the modern world. Thank you so much, Lewis. This was a great conversation. I enjoyed it very much. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.